0: Smoke with Twisted Rico is brought to you by Light Street Media. This show is supported by Joe's Albums in their two locations the original store at 317 Main Street in downtown Worcester, Massachusetts, and their second location at 5 Market Street in one of my favorite places, Northampton, Massachusetts. Joe's has an amazing collection of both new and used vinyl and a bunch of other goodies. It wasn't too long ago that I bought a friend of David Bowie t shirt and a mug at Joe's. And don't forget to check out Joe'sAlbums.com if you're really want to geek out. This show is also supported by my good friend Zach Shell and his family at Baby Loves Tacos located at 4508 Liberty Avenue in the Bloomfield section of Pittsburgh, PA. Baby Loves Tacos is one of the best places to eat some of the best Mexican-style food this side of the Rio Grande, and they also do catering. Head over to their website, babylovestacospgh.com for all the goods, and if you're in a band like many of my listeners Are and you're on tour, don't hesitate to stop by Baby Loves Tacos in Pittsburgh and tell them Twisted Rico sent you. Baby Loves Tacos, where everybody eats. Introducing Spectacle, the ultimate eyewear experience. We offer a carefully curated collection of logo free frames, so the focus is on you. We're located at 505 Tremont Street in Boston's historic South End neighborhood. Keep in mind that we only look expensive. Hope to see you soon and enjoy the day. No pressure. No pressure. Welcome to Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. That was Jerry's Kids, Pressure, from the classic hardcore compilation album, kind of one of the records that started the whole East Coast thing and got it going. This is Boston, not LA. I know stuff was happening down in D.C., but once Boston joined the party, American Hardcore, you know, was right there with L.A. and, and all these other markets. And Hardcore was born. Uh, Why did I play that song? Because this week we have a great show for you. We were able to get Brian and Rick Jones, uh, original members of Jerry's Kids, together for a Zoom. What a thrill having the two brothers um, you know, part, who were part of the original Boston hardcore scene together on this show. So now we've had members of SSD, gangrene, DFUs, DYS, and of course, Jerry's kids all on the show. We almost had the freeze, and I'm not giving up yet. We're going to get them kind of waiting on Cliff right now, and hopefully that's going to come together soon because these bands deserve to be heard and their stories deserve to be told because that original hardcore scene in Boston was one of the best in the world, not just for the genre, but music in general. So um, we're talking like 81 to 84 You know, even some little bit of 80. Uh, It's an incredible time for American Hardcore, a movement that, you know, can't be denied. My only regret that I have is that I didn't get to see more of the shows while I was in Boston at that time. But my resume is pretty good. I saw a lot of good shows when I moved to L.A. I did see that incredible last negative FX show at the Bradford Hotel. I was there when they uh, played Mission of Burma's last show, the matinee show, with uh, Dangerous Birds on the bill also. And there was a little bit of a riot. Although when you look at it now, it doesn't look like much of a riot. I think the the years have made it seem like it was bigger than it was. There was a little fight on stage, you know, a little fight. (laughs) But, you know, Negative FX, I thought was great that night. And I really – that was probably the biggest, you know, in terms of hardcore event that I got to see before I split town. I did see other hardcore shows, but that one was huge. By the time I got to L.A. on January 4th, 1981 – you know, I got to see a lot of good stuff there. It, a lot of people say 84 was the last year for the original hardcore scene. And, you know, I'm glad I was there for that. I saw SSD's last show at the Olympic Auditorium with Suicidal Tendencies. I talk about that a lot. The Minutemen were also on that show. I saw them a bunch of times, which they were always great. Same with the Circle Jerks. You know, I used to, I saw them at least three times out in California, you know, and Fiera was great. I saw Gangreen when they were. On the West Coast several times. I remember going down to that huge show down in San uh, San Diego with Battalion of Saints and a bunch of bands were on that. But I can't remember who played. You know, the Outlets had a gig in Boston that same night, and Walter Gustafson played a, a early show with Gang Green in San Diego and a, an eleven o'clock show in L.A. with the Outlets. And the reason I remember that is because I drove him. From, from San Diego to LA I've talked about this before Dave Barton was with me and we made it in like two hours on the four or five freeway and I don't think you can do that anymore but we did it um when I when I was referring to earlier about missing shows I I went to a lot of Boston shows in the early 80s I think the first time I went to the rat was the first day of 1980 when I saw uh the outlets play they played a show the day after new year's eve and i was there but i used to go to the channel a lot Uh, i saw great shows at the channel echo and the bunny Men is one i remember a lot i don't know why but i remember that as being one of my first shows i went uh to the channel saw a lot of great shows the rat storyville i used to go see you know dangerous birds sex execs you know bands from that scene a lot Uh, But I stayed away from Straight Edge and that's why I never made it to some of those Hall shows and the Galleries and all that because I wasn't really I was kind of a little you know, I was like, hey, you know, long hair, smoke weed, drink a lot of beer. I don't know if I will, do, you know, I don't know how I do with those guys. Al Burrill told me that I was wrong, that I, they would have been nice to me if I would have showed up. But I didn't know that then when I was like a young kid, you know, and when you're 19 years old, sometimes you don't really know what's safe and what's not. And that was the story and the reason why I didn't go there. I'll tell you, though, one thing I did see and I was thinking a lot about while I was talking to uh Jerry you know the guys from Jerry's Kids especially Rick cuz he played it was the 2010 Boston Hardcore reunion show with DYS Gang Green FU's Jerry's Kids Slapshot that was one of the greatest shows i've ever seen and in my talk with Brian and Rick i did say that Jerry's Kids were the best band that day that was not meant to be a slag on the other bands or to be disrespectful cuz i thought all the bands were great I hadn't seen Jerry's Kids before, and I was really excited to see DYS, and I guess I was kind of overlooking the fact that Jerry's Kids was playing, and I thought, oh, it'll be good. We'll see what happens. They were unbelievable good. Unbelievably good. If you watch the highlights of that show, you'll see what I mean. Uh, I was just blown away. Let's talk about Braintree High School for a minute, okay? Braintree is a small city with about 40,000 people, 20 minutes outside of Boston, neighboring Quincy, which you might know more about than Braintree. Imagine being at Braintree High School with all the members of Jerry's Kids and Gang Green. I'm talking about the original members. That's what it was like in the early 80s, probably maybe in the late 70s. We got into this in the interview and we talk about it, but Chris Doherty and Bob Sensi and the Jones brothers and all those guys went to school together, Mike Dean, you know, they were all there together at Braintree High School. It just blows my mind. We talk about that in the interview and I can't wait for you to hear it. For those of you that are not familiar, entirely familiar with what was going on in Boston in those days, I kind of put together a timeline of some of the, some of the important releases that came out, uh, which might not be 100% accurate because I didn't really go and check everything on this. I, I think you do. You think you know everything, but then you miss something. But this is kind of the way I think it went. And May 1982, this is Boston, not LA, came out. Of course, Jerry's Kids, Gangrene, The Freeze, and other and few proletariat, a few other bands were on there. But it was mostly the debut of Jerry's Kids, Gangrene, and The Freeze. That was what made that record really special. In the same year, later in the year, SSD, the kids will have their say! Exclaim number one. Later that year, the Fu's Kill for Christ! Exclaim number two. In 1983, The Freeze put out Land of the Lost, amazing record that always seems to get overlooked during that time period. Great songs on it, including American Town. They were from the Cape, so they people were like, oh, well, they're from the Cape. Who cares? It was Massachusetts. They were great. And I would have to say that the song American Town is in my top 10 favorite Boston band songs of all time. That's how great that was. 83 comes around, SSD, get it away, exclaim number three. Of course, Glue is on that, the title track. These are like two of the most famous songs ever to come from the Boston hardcore scene, especially Glue. Everyone covers that. Now, Youth of Today has been playing that on their tours for the last four or five years. They've made the song bigger and bigger, and it's still growing. Later in 83, DYS Brotherhood, exclaim number four. Wolfpacks on that another amazingly popular song from that era. Also in '83, the FUs "My America" number that was Exclaim number five, and then Exclaim number six also came out in '83. Jerry's Kids "Is This My World" that contains the song "I Don't Belong," which is synonymous with that era. In 1984, Gangrene put out that sold-out seven-inch. It's the first release on Tang Records. And, and and Negative FX, who also formed way back in 81, recorded in 82, but didn't release their album in 84. That's my timeline, all right? That's my timeline. There's other things that happened during that timeline that have to do with the Boston hardcore scene, but these are the important, in my opinion now, these were the most important releases during that time. I'm telling you this because we talk about some of this in the interview, and I'm not going to talk about this interview anymore I want to play it for you. So here I am with Brian and Rick, the Jones brothers from Jerry's Kids, and they're going to tell us in their words what happened. It's a great story. Enjoy. So what's the age difference between you guys? Three years. Three Is years. It? Yeah, I didn't even know I, that.
1: Yeah,
0: oh. I, I know
2: because I uh, I used to um, – I used to – change my id so to be a three <laughs> so why i'd be 21
1: which was 24. oh i get yeah i
2: see yeah i turn a six into a three kind of easy with
0: some shading so you're three years older rick
1: i guess that's it
0: huh. was it was it like senior sophomore type thing or senior freshman senior freshman because yeah. i I got a few questions about that fantastic Braintree High School, but let me, yeah. let me ask you guys this first. Sure. When you were really young, right, and you are like, you're three years older, Rick, so you're probably more into it. When, you guys, when did you start listening to music and what kind of stuff were you listening to? Yeah, uh, let's
1: see. I I think my first record was uh the monkeys that I got off of a cereal uh, uh, box thing. That's a great album. Yeah, exactly. I, I, Best of the monkeys or some sort of thing like that. And then uh, I don't know, you know, early stuff was Beatles, a lot of Beatles early, and then uh, and then in my teens things started to things started to turn. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you know when when there's only like a couple of albums in the house. You listen to that over and over and yeah. over and over and over again, yeah. just constantly. So, like, like I probably know. I mean, it, it might be subconscious, but but probably on the A side, every song, the you know, on that monkeys album, you know which one's yeah. coming next. Um, you know the whole
1: side basically. Yeah, it kind of went from uh, Beatles to Metallicao. A quick right-hand turn, yeah.
0: It's funny, because the first full-length album I remember having was the first Monkees record, and I had that Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields Forever 45. And my brother and sister and I, I was the oldest, we must have played that 45, like, every day for, like, a year until we could afford another record, you know? (laughs) If you you grew up in a poor family, you take take, you know, my mother had Herb Albert and Tijuana Brass, of course, but, you know. Right, so, um, Brian, were you like listening to the stuff that your brother was listening to? Because he was just your older brother. Were there more siblings, by the way, or was it just you two? We, we have a younger brother and an older sister. Um, but uh,
2: me uh, and, and Rick and uh, my younger brother shared a room. Um, and, you know, the turntable was, was, you know, in the living room. So, right, everyone heard whatever was playing, so yeah, um, so usually something like uh you know I'd, I'd come home from school when noam was home and or when maybe rick and and Bob were there and and you'd just hear metallic ko, you
1: yeah. know, or uh a lot of Ramones, oh uh, yeah. it's alive, we would play that on uh forty five
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a good way to listen to Ramones. Um, okay, I know that a, there's a lot of guys, and I think just Jerry's kids in Gang Green that all went to school together. Uh, who, who, like who, who were was this in Bra- Braintree High School? Was it that you guys yeah. all went to? So exactly, who was it? Was it all of the guys? Pretty much everyone.
2: Yeah. Everyone who was in those bands um, was.
0: You know, we were all going to school together. Yeah, and the lead singer
1: of uh, Siege. Oh, that's oh, right, yeah.
0: They were yeah, one of Kevin. the early Boston hardcore bands. Yeah. Wow, um, that's a popular high school. Yeah, so we all... We uh, were all within
2: the three-year period. There was you and Bob, the oldest, then then Chris and Kevin um, were the same age. They graduated together. And then yeah. then there was... Um, You know myself, Dave Aronson, Brian Betzker, Mike Dean, uh, wow. Bill Manley, Chris, and no, Chris, Chris and Kevin were oh a yes, year older. Oh, that's right. So they were
0: they Kevin, were sophomores when we were freshmen. Which Kevin are you talking about? Kevin Mahoney. Kevin Mahoney. Okay, yeah. wow. So you were the same age as Chris Doherty, Brian? I'm a year younger than Chris. Year younger. Wow, what a high school! And you guys all hung out together? Yes. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, yeah, I mean
2: most of us uh like I know, you know, Dave, Mike, Bill, um, you know, from elementary school. Okay, you're talking about and, and playing playing little league baseball.
0: Mike Dean and Bill Manley.
2: And Brian Betzker and Dave Aronson. So, so we've known each other like like since you know first
0: grade. So it's all of gangrene and all of Jerry's kids. That's yeah. um, yeah. I have to ask, well, let me do this first. And then I'll ask you this question. Chris Doherty, I talked to him the other day, because I wanted to just, you know, see if there was anything that I might've missed here. He credits Rick with being the one that would discover the music and turn everyone else onto Do you, do you remember it that way too, Rick? And and were you, what were the records he's talking about that you used to bring to the group?
1: I don't when I say know, I, the I group, was, I
0: mean all you guys. Yeah, I
1: think, um, you know, again, uh, we all got turned on, I think, by a lot of stuff. We all worked at uh, the IHOP and Quincy together, and we were already kind of starting to pick up instruments, and when you're picking up instruments when you first get going, of course, it's all rudimentary, so I would suggest it doesn't matter what you do, it sounds... a little uh a little uh a little rough uh so you know but early on i just think uh all of us we were all just kind of pushing pushing things in terms of uh kind of letting everything hang out there so you know um Screwed around with playing records at different speeds because you would have that availability on the turntable. And then because early on, we'd be listening to some whatever it was, uh, Dead Boys or uh, like I said, the Ramones and then starting to mess around with speeds. And then me and Bob were doing some things with a couple other folks and we were, hey, let's write songs with no leads and kind of putting constraints around ourselves to kind of make us do things a little different. And then, um, you know, just trying to find ways to, I don't know, uh, you're kind of satisfying some hole that you're trying to get to, you know, in terms of what you're listening to, is it enough? And how do you get fully emoted into it? Like, like you're part of it. And so that just kind of, I think, leads you to kind of pushing and and getting to, I don't know what what the right word is, but just getting to another place uh, uh, when you're really feeling the music and you're part of it and just finding a way to push that limit, uh, if you, that makes sense.
0: You mentioned the Dead Boys and the Ramones, where they're more, like as far as the hardcore goes, what, what are your first things that you remember hearing? Or did you guys just I, start it I all? Think,
2: <laughs> I think, I think, um, I think, we're primarily listening to a lot of like, you know, late 70s punk rock, Ramones, Dead Boys, um, damned, ton of clash. Yeah. Like a ton of guys from Braintree, huge clash fans. Um and then it just it just kind of, you know, evolved from that because most of those bands were not bands that you were gonna see in a club anymore. Certainly not you, you know, you could see the Ramones, but um, you weren't gonna see the dead boys. But um uh but you know it just it just kind of evolved. And I yeah. think I, I think we started that what was it uh well the local, local
1: stuff, stuff we started to get into yeah uh you know, like La Pest and we had uh mm. and unnatural acts. Those were kind of like two uh uh DMZ kind of in the mix there, but those were just mm. acts bands that we just uh connected with just in terms of the kind of raw energy and then we were like oh these are local bands and you can talk to these guys and i think one of the uh things that happened was when that jealous again ep came out yeah Black we listened Black. to it and we were like oh that's we didn't know if anything was going on in california or anywhere else frankly we just didn't know anything uh and when that came out, we were like, "This, this is oh, genius. This is this is kind of what we're already doing." Uh, we didn't know there was this whole thing out there with the circle jerks and the germs and all that. So yeah. that was kind of an eye opener that we didn't necessarily see a big difference between that and at least the basics of what we were doing. So it was just kind of a H- had, Sorry,
0: had any. I
2: think I think the decline of the Western civilization yeah, yeah. was a. was a big was a big kind of eye opener of and 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 basically kind of you know drew us down the right path um because i I remember we basically all kind of walked down to the strand theater in quincy and saw that yeah and and then it was like the next day
1: you know we're like okay we got to explore this more yeah and we got started getting more serious i mean To them, we were in various basements, sharing various members, you know, trading riffs, um, you know. Rick and Bob were really
2: the, you know, the rest of us were kind of, you know, we'd we'd have a couple of our own songs and would primarily be doing kind of your standard punk rock, um, you know, covers. But, you know, Rick and Bob, they could actually write songs they had uh they had actually a lot of really good songs back then that were uh and and some interesting
1: experiments i guess you'd call them yeah yeah i think we just kind of uh uh basic theory was play slightly beyond your capabilities
0: had any Boston bands started up at that point besides, you know, the La Peste's and all the earlier bands, were there any of the hardcore bands starting up at this point? Freeze. Yeah. The Freeze, the, the freeze, freeze were already
2: kind of
1: established and yeah. playing shows. Um, yeah. Stains. I- there was a early band out of Worcester. If you listen to that 45 general foods oh
2: yeah, yeah yeah yeah
0: and they were kind of uh
2: they were like a
1: faster ramones
0: yeah
1: yeah um, Wormtown
0: had their little scene going on for sure yeah
1: yeah so that was stuff we listened to and i think the freeze they were to us they were like oh these guys are real musicians yeah i don't think we, we were pretty our equipment was yeah. I still remember my my base was a Sears base and my picks uh, were made out of, uh, uh, I had this uh, plastic uh, sled and I would cut uh, <laughs> with scissors picks out of my sled because it was hard to get, I couldn't afford to get picks back then. Yeah,
2: We were actually soldering our own cables, you'd break a cable, you'd solder it. And you'd be like, well, if you messed up, you know, you're just getting electrocuted a little bit.
0: Uh, um, I have to ask you this question because I don't know these guys, but they're listed on the Wikipedia page. It said in 1981, Rick and Bob formed the band with Eric Saganov and Carl Jacobson. I don't, I don't know those guys. Uh, Yeah. Eric was
1: the next town over. He was a drummer and Carl was a, a friend who lived up the street. So we had a, yeah it was our probably first uh band it was called the
0: insects so uh, it wasn't jerry's and... kit it wasn't jerry's kids no. yet no
1: no no but it was where we first started writing so it was almost all original and i think the only thing that we we covered um, what was that band out of uh europe uh, ski patrol
2: yeah yeah yeah
1: i thought i thought you did um submission Oh yeah. Maybe submission. And, uh, you guys have good memories. It was called agent orange. Yeah. That was agent orange. I'm on fire. Yeah. Yeah. So we did a mix of mix of stuff, but that's where we first started kind of writing.
0: And Dave Aronson, I should say rest in peace. Um, and Brian soon came in and then is that when you came in Brian? Uh, yeah, I think, I think,
2: um, I think, uh, Brian Betzger and Dave and Bill Manley um, were, you know, doing stuff in uh, Brian's basement. And, um, and I went over and, and I started, you know, singing with them and that was primarily covers. And then I think, um, I think, I think Bill quit that and started playing with Chris and they were practicing if you recall it they, they all moved over to Bill's basement. Right. And so they were all practicing at Bill Manley's house with with Chris and and Mike Dean. And that was primarily a cover band. Um and they did a lot of Who and Stones. Um, but you know, they were those guys were good. They did yeah, their song. Really... They were like they had um yeah, they they were fantastic. Mike, Mike Dean was just great um, at that stuff. Uh, cause he could really get into it. Um, he really liked playing the, the who stuff because yeah. he could pound away. Um, and then I think when, when you guys graduated, Greg was going off to college. So, um, uh, Rick and Bob came and started playing, um, with me, Dave and Brian. And then I, I just started singing from there. I was playing me and after 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 Bill left. I started playing bass, and then um, it was only a couple of months later. Once the summer started, we started playing with Bob and Rick because I was like, I can play as bad as he can.
0: Yeah, I mean, what <laughs> yeah. the hell? This is probably still around
1: 1981.
0: Uh, it's the yeah, it's 80 the, 81.
2: Yeah, it's like the
1: spring of 81. Yeah. Spring is in one. To Brian's point, Chris and Bill and Mike, they were, they could really play yeah, they, they knew, anything. Yeah. I mean, they were really, really good. Um, So sometimes that might get lost in terms of you hear some first recordings or whatever, <clears throat> but Chris was a phenomenal, is yeah. a phenomenal guitar player. Bill. I mean,
2: yeah. And Mike, Mike was playing drums from a young age. And and I'm not sure when Bill started, but I know like, you know he was serious. You know he was he was taking lessons, and you know he would you know be practicing scales. And he really he could he could really play. Right. Yeah. And then Chris, mm-hmm. you you'd call him on the phone, and all you heard were scales in the background. He was so just just do it all he'd day. Just be talking to you like nothing was going on, and you just hear him you know, up and down and up and down. We weren't, so, we weren't burdened with lessons. With the, yeah. Yeah. We were, we, we would go to a show. We didn't have like constraints and, and see what the guy on stage was doing. And we'd be like, Oh, i want to go home and try that.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: No, I know you guys ended up playing shows together later, but in the early, early, early days, did their first version of gangrene and Jerry's kids ever play together? Did they ever do any real shows?
1: um i think yeah, there we, were a couple of there were a couple yeah. of shows uh early Media on workshop yeah, yeah those kind of things but really we would do play for each other during practice yeah. i mean we would just go from basement to basement so what you saw on stage when we were We'd playing live, that was times. what the practice was yeah. i mean to us it didn't matter whether we were in the basement or playing somewhere it was what you saw there was the same thing you'd see in the basement yeah. so we would some each of the other's practices, yeah.
2: Some of the early best early Jerry's Kids shows were probably in Brian's basement. Yeah, you
0: know? probably. Yeah. Was the with the first was the first show? Would you call it a, a house show, or did you play a club, or the media workshop, or something like that first?
2: Was it? um Was it? I think uh, we did some party inflictors? in Quincy. Yeah, it was uh with the inflictors. Oh, yeah, the
0: inflictors. So we played did like a. You- uh, basements right? or something Were they called the inflictors yeah something yeah. like that incinerators yeah, sorry i
2: apologize to those
0: guys incinerators yeah the inflictors i know the incinerators i don't <laughs> yeah yeah no it wasn't
1: the inflict it was that yeah you're right so it was yeah. that and then i think right from Can- there probably either media workshop or gallery east or something like that there was the canton show that paul did yeah because you couldn't
2: go out um and then there was was it a church in cambridge or something
0: yeah yeah that's right i bet you al quint was at those shows i should ask you that question um at this point the the i'm going to just call you guys the brain tree crew did the brain tree crew cross paths at all with the boston crew did you guys get to know each other yet or I'm still before this is Boston, LA. So I'm talking pre Boston, LA. I, I think no until, you know, until that, uh, until that,
2: that black flag show at the paradise and, you know, the SSD guys were handing out flyers. Um, And then there was kind of some crossover because we went to the SSD show um, and it wasn't, it's probably the middle of the summer when, when Springer came over, and it was probably was it fall or
1: no? Oh, Springer lived in Quincy, just you know, in the general proximity. Yeah. So he was hanging out, especially with uh Chris and that team. So, and you know, um, he taught us how to sneak into clubs, yeah. uh, when Springer the age did. limit went up. <laughs> oh, yeah, how to get into yeah, the channel, know. how to get into the paradise, how to get into the rat. <laughs> um, which then, you know, got us into seeing a lot of the local band. So he was a good, uh, uh, good corruptive force, I guess. Hey, it's the, uh, the scammer. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he so, had the yeah. scammer. So that automatically. Yeah. I mean, we, we're all kind of doing shows together, especially at gallery. East. I would go to a lot of those SSD shows and try to hang on for dear life.
0: No, yeah. I'm guessing that, um, Jerry's kids and especially Gang Green were not straight edge. You guys didn't consider yourself part of that straight edge thing, right, at all?
1: No, I I don't... I mean, I don't want to talk for Brian, but I, I didn't even think of it. I didn't even know what it was. I I was like... Bob had to tell me, I'm like, hey, what's with the X's? <laughs> I didn't. And I was like, oh, okay, well, whatever. Yeah, because you said... I
2: think we were... I think uh yeah. I think we really enjoyed the concept. And uh but uh I think we were
1: there was there was uh there's no straight edge kids from Braintree. Yeah, yeah. I and think you,
0: we were more like the don't tell us what to do. But, yeah. And you yeah. mentioned Quincy too, Springer, the Barton brothers are from Quincy oh, yeah, huh? too. She must have yeah. knew Dave and Rick as well, because they were playing out already at that time too. Yeah, the elements. Yeah. Yeah, we
2: would we would see them and, and and you know we knew them back then and they actually as the crow flies probably less than a mile from my parents' house. Yeah. Um you could you know we'd
0: go over there, you know, see them all the time. So so how did it get to the point where you guys ended up get, I don't know how did someone approach you about the this This is Boston, not LA compilation, or how did that whole thing come about?
2: I think it was just after one of the shows, uh, Mr. B kind of approached us and they, they basically um, did a, did a story in Boston rock. And then um the story they did in Boston rock kind of, you know, turned
1: into the Boston layout album like the album. Yeah, and they it, just approached us and of course we were like, Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: did, did you somebody's gonna
0: pay for us to go in and record these songs? Okay, sure. Yeah. I know you guys ended up doing a lot of shows with the FUs, and I'll get to that. But yeah. you knew Gangrene and did right. you know about the proletariat and the groinoids? And oh yeah, and we th- played with the
1: proletariat,
0: uh, knew about the groinoids, uh, Spankman, the Nuns, uh, yep. all of that. Yeah, oh yeah.
1: Um,
0: absolutely. Al Quint, you know, told me that you guys recorded 13 songs in that session, but there's only seven that have been released. What happened to the other six songs?
1: Um, um they're out there I think somebody somebody has put some of that stuff out there I did have for that tape baked yeah. to preserve it so we have all that material some of them they just weren't sharp enough we didn't play well enough on them or not not fully vetted yeah I mean it was stuff that you
2: could you could play at a hardcore show but it, it wasn't really
1: release ready yeah some of the songs, you know, they evolve over time. So they were, not they were, you know, they weren't really ready. And then some were kind of outtakes. We just couldn't. Yeah. It's the first time in the studio, and when you're all in a unit and kind of synced up together is one thing. And you're put in this kind of uh, different environment. You're nervous. You're not yeah. really playing your best. And and there's a lot of you know the mean, guys going you really need to follow what the drummer's doing yeah what yeah there were a lot of (laughs) is that how it
2: works there were a lot of visual cues for (laughs) like breaks and things like that that you kind of do subconsciously and and uh when you're um when you're playing or singing in a room with no windows all by yourself and you can't see anything um you lose a lot of that yeah
1: we were like a unit and we would practice in a whatever a 14 by 14 space and you just have that energy and you're sinking and when you're on stage it's kind of that same thing you're kind of a unit and you go in the studio and everyone's kind of apart and at least that's the way it was there so it was
0: and lou, it was hard for us lou giordano was pretty much the engineer running the yeah. show there right Him and then oh, Jim, jimmy defour well they did a fantastic job with yeah. us because very we had you know we had
2: no idea what we were doing, and and you know, so we were like pretty much almost on for the ride, you yeah. know. So whatever they told us to do, I think we completely behaved. I didn't think we screwed around at all, did we? Well,
1: oh, that's a that's a. That's I, a I recall <laughs> behaving.
0: Did, did you guys window. know the other bands at the time were, were record that were recording, or did you guys go first today? They- you know, like the freeze and Gang Green, were they already recording there at the time?
2: Um, Gang Green recorded. Did they record after us, or I forget? But I mean, we were all going to school together, so so we were talking. So you know, so I don't recall exactly when Gang Green recorded, but I'm sure I was completely aware of when they were in. Yeah.
0: Did they just have you guys set up and play all your songs right in a row live?
1: Let's- it was basically live, but we were there was some uh, you know separation in terms of how they had some of the stuff, but uh, I think the we did the scratch
2: vocals. And yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would think it was a pretty standard workflow. You run through them, you, you get them right with scratch vocals, and then you go back. Yeah,
1: it's basically live, pretty live.
0: Yeah. So how old were you then, Brian? You must were you only like fifteen or something? Uh uh yeah, I was 15, 15 or 16, yeah. I wow. don't think I was 16
2: yet, no. But yeah, 15. Uh,
0: and Chris's Chris was also the same one year old. Well, wow, you guys were so Yeah, we young.
2: over we overlap. So he he would have been uh, I'm pretty sure he was 16. We overlap a little bit. Um But uh yeah, he was 16. And then, you know, Mike and Bill were both 15.
0: Yeah. So, so this is Boston, not L.A. Was there a big release show for that? Because I was in college radio at that time and I remember getting the record, but I don't remember going to a C, uh, not CD. <laughs> there weren't CDs yet. A, uh, a record release for that. I'm getting my years a little mixed up.
1: there was no cds anything like that no i don't i don't recall and uh i think it literally was we we recorded our stuff uh decided what probably needed to be on that uh one tune was saved for the uh, 45 um Mm -hmm. but then we just you know we're just so we didn't know what we were doing so we just kind
0: of we weren't really involved after that point. Yeah, we were like, I mean, okay, back to the basement. And did they uh, did they did they call you up and say we have some finished albums for you or anything like that? I don't
1: think so. I think it just got released. Yeah.
0: And then they wanted they asked for some artwork
1: here and there, just some little things. And uh yeah, that was that was about it. We went about our business and then it when on. it went out, then we started getting letters to the house and we we're like, yeah. what the hell is this stuff? Um were you, were you yeah, surprised from
0: California or wherever? Yeah. Or Europe or right. When you got the finished product and you looked at it and you heard the songs, you know, and all the songs, you know, cause freeze did, they had a bunch gangrene. I mean, were you impressed with the whole thing and go, wow, this is amazing. Or were you just like, yeah. Oh, these are just a bunch of hardcore bands, you know? Yeah. Well, when I, when you get an album with, with, uh,
2: you know, 30 songs on it, and from all these different bands, you know, you, you know, we listen to it a lot, um, and and we, you know, we we listen to it, and and you learn, you know, you listen to you know what the FUs were doing, and now you know out of a, you know, you actually have more of a blueprint of what they're doing, right? And you can, you know, it's one thing to go to the show and and hear the songs, and you know, and you know, and be in the heat of battle. Um, But then when you can actually sit down, listen to the structure, listen to what they're doing, and then, you know, you can't help but say, you know, compare it to, you know, what the freeze are doing. And then, you know, you read Cliff's words and then you are just like, holy shit, you know, these guys, they could play, they can write, you know. So it's it was, you know, you start to, you know, everything was a, you know, was a learning experience from from even from that album, yeah. you know, and you're really, you know, that that's where you really start to become fans of those bands, um, you know, once you hear really what they're doing and what they're saying.
1: Yeah, I like the fact every band sounds different. They have their own sound. There's no mm-hmm. formula. You can see everyone's trying to figure it out. So you listen to the proletariat stuff and they go, Wow, that's pretty incredible the way they're thinking about uh, music and then you're listening to Gang Green and it's like in a completely different world in terms of speed yeah. and and uh, what they're trying to do. And then the FUs, they have these interesting uh, structures and kind of double chorus type of things. Yeah. And what they do kind of vocally with backups was something a little different. And yeah, so everybody sounded you know, a little had their own kind of uh kind Just, of road uh, yeah. they were going down that was very different than each you know you, you, I de- you identifiable can't really compare. style yeah. yeah identifiable style and sound
2: um which was really which is really cool which is what we 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 saw from a lot of um you know hardcore back then is that right. every you know, Black Flag didn't sound like DOA, who didn't sound like Circle Jerks, who didn't sound like, um, germs, you know, the germs, exactly. Like, yeah. like everyone had their own, really their own unique thing going on. Yeah.
0: Did you guys get on, a, I know you, that famous Misfit show, uh, which is all over YouTube, Drew Stone, I think did the video. Were there a lot of other big touring bands like that, that you guys got to open for, um, well, you were still yeah. in the band, Brian, or did it happen after you? I know after. that you yeah, yeah after. Was, yeah. Brian,
1: yeah, that, uh, unfortunately, yeah, that would have been, uh, would have been nice to keep it as a five piece for, uh, for, uh, yeah, throughout, but, uh, you know, just couldn't, could happen. The first big show that I, I
2: couldn't do, which I think is really the first kind of big show was, uh, was Angelic Upstarts at the channel. Yeah. Right. Which was a a great show, uh, but I, I couldn't do it. Before I, I ask you, <laughs> I, 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 I know yeah. I'm
0: gonna. I figured you were at a lot of these shows. Before I ask you about that, yeah. I wanted to. Unsafe at Any Speed. Uh, what what was that? Was that like the leftover tracks or something from This Is Boston, Not LA? Because I've never seen a copy of that, but it's listed on on the internet yeah. as a release. That was a planned release
2: with the album. They they had planned to release that after anyway. Um,
1: so that's. Yeah, it was a compliment uh, to the album. So kind of like a companion. So they released the album and then they released the uh, the 45 with a couple of samples, you know, this uh, machine gun songs. was on your yeah. song
0: machine gun was on that record. Yeah um brian i i you know i have to ask you this because i don't really know but when did the whole thing go down where you were told that you couldn't play anymore do you i've never heard the story i mean of of it just says brian broke his leg and his parents wouldn't let him play anymore but what happened
2: it it wasn't the broken leg it was it was everything else that had been you know piling up uh you know me not being responsible uh you know me effing around um you know not taking care of the things that i should have been taking care of um so i kind of needed like a uh um oh what is it uh yeah i needed I, Brian was a little
1: out of control
0: yeah so this is all. Everyone yeah. thinks that you you left the pen because of no. you? wow. No, it wasn't the broken leg. Um, Interesting. Someone yeah, needs they, to change the Wikipedia uh, page. I think.
2: <laughs> yeah, the Wikipedia page isn't really um, isn't really that accurate.
1: You no, know, that accurate. But I mean, the know, knife. Who fight, cares? The knife might you know. put things over the edge. Probably. What's the, that? The knife fight.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The knife fights. Yeah. <laughs> knife fights i think my you know you know i think my my parents at the time were were like every every possible worst nightmare you could have about your child i think my parents were having that about me um and you know there was some there was some um some kind of rocky arguments in there so it was it it was it was not good um but you know part of it is you know part of it's my own fault, so you know it's a missed opportunity for me um, I will say that you know after it happened um you know after the shock of it happening um you know was over, I had complete support from all you guys right you know no one no one blinked an eye or you know said anything
1: you know negative about me yeah um well not to your face yeah well (laughs) that's what band practice is for yeah yeah (laughs) well well brian's live performances were uh that was a gap because uh for people who got to see that he was uh just incredible really in the moment and you know there were very few shows that didn't end up with brian leading in some way so i mean even when he busted his leg on that media workshop show
2: he's on the ground
1: finishing we did we i mean we We were very workman about what we did we were like oh we have 10 more songs to do let's keep going so that didn't stop us so yeah um you
0: you so you played the rest of the set with a broken leg oh yeah yeah it was
2: well they were torn ligaments.
0: My leg was not right. That was for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All those steps up and down. <laughs> oh yeah. And then the, yeah. the loading. And so, so- well, I, well, I still want to hear your commentary on this other stuff that I'm going to talk about right now, because yeah. I have a feeling you're at the show. Uh You guys ended up playing a lot of shows, Rick, with the FUs. Was that by design Were you guys like always put on the same bills or was it just a co or oh, your friends or, I
1: mean, we really became friends. So we would stay, you know, we do a show and whatever, maybe sleep over Wayne's house. I'd slept over John's apartment. We just uh, ended up doing lots of shows. And then when, you know, we would go to their practices and hang out on Friday nights or Saturdays. And just, we just naturally started kind of hanging out together and we would be doing shows together we went on the road a little bit together here and there and uh so you know they're friends today really yeah you know, D- i know there up, was when the i D- go up to maine
0: now i'll stop in and see uh wayne mayesby uh-huh. uh even now so i yeah. know you guys went down the to dc together and did some uh east coast dates together yeah. um how did uh i know xclaim records put out is this my world which Got to tell you, is regarded as probably one of the greatest hardcore records ever made. I think I told you that when you were on my show with Lovely. I got to ask you about Lovely later because I'm wondering what happened with that. Uh, but um, I got this review here that I have to read you because to me, it's the greatest review I've ever read of a, about a record in my life. It was in Maximum Rock and Roll. I dug it up because I remembered it. And this is what it says. Pusshead wrote it. An adventure into hyperactive, full tilt, bulldozing, quickness and thundering power. This overwhelming supply of burning rap fire speed destroys the mold, exploding the maniac doses of invincible strength and energy, bolting drums, high velocity crooning. Hysterically blistering wild guitars featuring ex-gangrene axe man Chris Doherty. Jerry's kids totally shred the eardrums to mince meat for the fast fanatics cravings, the essence of what others will try to duplicate. How's that for a review? Is that a grammatically critic sentence? I don't. I, it's more yeah. than one sentence, but I don't, okay. you know. Yeah, it's, that's humbling. There's yeah. a lot of adjectives.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's uh, humbling.
0: But um, I love the record, and most people do, and they regard it now as one of the best records ever made. How did you come on Al's radar? I know you said you saw him on shows and stuff, and did he just say, "I want to put this on X claim"? And I guess he didn't tell you you had to be straight edge or anything like that. He just said, "No, I don't think." I mean- I, again, he,
1: I, they, they had SSD weave that into their songs, uh, but. From a standpoint of, you know, we would go to their, you know, world headquarters and hang out with the rest of those guys. It it was never any kind of like. There was no us and them. You know, there was,
2: you know, um, I think, I think everyone was, you know, you had, you had people that you were closer to, but, but the, you know, the
1: extended group of, of all the people in Boston, it was you know, yeah, I think that was more of an outside thing because uh some of that crew was so intimidating looking and uh and uh more so than when you're in the headquarters and just kind of hanging out listening to some records together or whatever. But I think Bob Bob worked with Al in terms of Bob really handled a lot of the a lot of the shows and coordination. I give him a lot of credit for that because my my patience with those kind of things is uh de minimis let's say um and i just don't have a lot of patience with uh with kind of that that was stuff he, so he really he really, like, he really the, navigated all of that you he know? was
0: like the manager pretty much
1: he did a lot of that yeah. coordination with shows i wasn't setting any any of that stuff up it was just basically here's what we're going to do and, he, and here's where you need to be there and he he took a lot of that on
0: i'm actually going to talk to bob soon we we yeah. talked about having him come on the show and i'm looking forward yeah. to that um so how many copies were originally pressed of that record do you know the x claim record it's I think really it was hard three to...
1: or five thousand i think that many wow
0: but i think out of the gate we sold i mean we
1: they they sold quick i mean i think we did pretty good um but again, I'm probably wrong. Bob will know exactly how many were printed. He'll say there were 500 and he'll know how much they cost. He'll know who the, who printed the covers. He'll you know he'll know all that. I'm more like, yeah, hey, that's pretty good. We're good at what?
0: So I forgot to ask you how Chris ended up coming over to Jerry's Kids for a yeah. while. How'd that all come together?
1: Yeah, so Dave... Uh, I'm not sure what was going on. I have some suspicions, uh, but he just kind of stopped. Show- you know, we never had a conversation like, uh, Dave, what are you doing? Or he just stopped kind of, sh- as I recall it anyway, my recollection is he's kind of stopped showing up at practices. And when, in our practices, and I can understand this, I mean, we would, I mean, we would practice, for three hours, and we would run through the set two or three times, one with vocals, one with no vocals, one with the lights off, one with, you know, we were very, uh, it was, uh, it was like uh, uh, intense, and we would do that five days a week. During the summer, if we were all off, we would practice in the afternoon, we would practice again at night, we would, I mean, it was, uh and dave had other stuff going on and i think he just started stopped kind of showing up and chris Green, had broken up and it was just it was just a natural hey when not you come in and i think probably him and bob talked and yeah we're all friends so it was just like yeah of course yeah it let's... was like second nature chris going over and playing yeah it wasn't like a I don't even think it was like a, a strategic conversation Well, Chris is left. He should, it was just like, you're not doing anything. Why don't you just come over and play? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was not like a, uh, some sort of a uh, strategic decision. <laughs> I was, think he I... was free and not doing anything. And we had, uh, you know, we had yeah. been progressing with our, with our, uh, with our song. So we did a, uh, We did a recording when Dave was still in the band that was post Bossa Not L.A., post Brian's leaving. Um, And we, you can hear, I've listened to those recordings, you can hear the bridge between Bossa Not L.A. and Is This My World in terms of the uh, kind of intensity, uh, the lyrics, the structures, and then kind of where the music was pushing to so that's almost like a bridge recording of about i don't know it's probably eight or nine tunes or something like that um i think that six were on the tape something like that yeah there's other versions and stuff so but uh so you can see that that was where the direction that everything was going in and it wasn't uh it was just happening it was just evolving um organically it wasn't like we were having a discussion around it it was just yeah. as we were writing and then our playing was getting better then we were continued to push ourselves in but, terms of whether it was speed or aggressiveness it just yeah. everything time, kept going up a notch
2: by the time Boston on LA was released I think that transition had already you know those songs the the um it had already kind of moved on. The, yeah. the, the, the style was much more intense, um, you know, even by the time it was released. So those yeah. original recordings, it was only a few months, because if you think about, um, you know, how much we had actually practiced or pl- and played right. uh, before Boston LA was done, wasn't really that long. We were still <laughs> fighting to put a full set together you right. know, and play, be able to play right. for, yeah. you know, 30 minutes.
1: So, yeah, that's true.
0: Now, um, is there a reason why there wasn't another, re- I know Kill, Kill, Kill came out in 87. I'm going to talk to you about in that in a second, but that period after uh, Is This My World, uh, what happened? Did you guys just kind of start fizzling out or? Uh,
1: I would, uh, each of us were going to school. Uh, College? And then- you know, one thing we should, I mean, this was a, a lot of intense personalities in the room. Uh, And so, you know, it was, it was very uh, intense environment in terms of uh, four, sometimes five kind of unique individuals. So, I mean, there was, it was, uh, it was a combative environment at times. Uh, So there was a lot of lot of stress and going on and the music was intense and it kind of linked up with the personalities too in the room and then add that with uh, how am I going to pay rent and I got to go to school and kind of do all those things it just became really kind of hard to pull all that together so um so that I don't I don't know what the there wasn't necessarily a point where we say we're not going to play anymore i just think it was um everybody going to school and then kind of some of the competing
0: competing priorities basically yeah Yeah. and then when you started playing together again is that when jack joined came on drums at that point was first Uh, yeah we had
1: uh mike dean joined um and we were uh Playing some shows with him we did a couple of things in uh in new york uh dc um and then he was i forget if it was going into the military or he was out of the military i forget what was going on or he was moving or yeah whatever. i i yeah um I think Jack was playing with Buzz and the gang, and we used to go see them. And then I think we just Buzz basically torture gang. him. I think we just torture him and say, you know, you should really be playing with us, uh, kind of thing. <laughs> it may have been his worst decision. <laughs> yeah. I think he, no, 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 what it was, actually, we would he see them. He was Bob. playing with them. And he then Bob had a side yeah. project called uh, something ca- Cadillac or I don't know. Blue something. Yeah. Bob had a side project and Jack was drumming for him. And Jack was the drummer and singer for a band called the choir boys, which they put out a EP and it's, it's It's really great. great. And Jack plays drums and sings and his brother and him harmonize together. And they really, really awesome stuff. So Jack's kind of multi-talented person. So he was playing with Bob, one of, one of Bob's side projects. And I guess Bob coerced him into playing with the, jerry's kids and i remember those first couple practices jack was just like you guys are this is not right this but... is what's your problem <laughs> yeah we were playing that uh, we were he practicing still in, a, it. in a boiler <laughs> room in in bob's basement yeah yeah
2: that was a Oof.
1: yeah so kill, that was not a
2: 14 by 14 space down there that was more like a you know a six by six it yeah, was tiny we're all crammed
1: in a tiny yeah. space
0: Tell me about a little about kill, kill, kill. I love that you guys covered Spy Master. That was fantastic. Cause it seems like a lot of bands started covering it after that. I think you guys might have been the first ones that I heard we, do it. We had a we had a
2: live tape that a, a friend had given us from the 1979
0: yeah, Rock I and have Roll that. Rumble.
2: Yeah. Um, it's now you can actually get it. Yeah. Um, but uh, but we had that and we listened to that live performance that was like simulcast off of bcn over and
1: over and over yeah. and and uh so yeah so curtis had come to us we were just playing gigs writing tunes and uh curtis had come and said oh you you know you from uh tang it said you know would you guys consider putting something else out so we said sure and then he said it'd be nice to have a cover. And of course, he had a bunch of ideas on what what that should be. Uh, But we picked that song because uh, we wanted to give a nod to the early bands that influenced us and also felt like La Paz never got a really good solid recording of it's their true. other material. Yeah. And we felt we could put something behind it. Uh in terms of we, you know, we obviously it's a different yeah. arrangement. Um we did some things a little bit different on it to add some dynamics, but we really wanted to put something out there where people would say, who is this band? Who's the pest? And look, look, look them up. And um yeah, so it was a way to give a nod to to those guys. But the bands that were all in that and uh, kind of playing in that time frame because they had a big influence on us.
0: Yeah. 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 I know Paul Colder, doing something right now with those La songs and there's going to be a release because yeah. he was on my show talking about that. I'm very excited about that. We did um, for Chris's, uh, for Chris's uh, fundraiser. Yeah. We did
1: a short set and we did uh, kill me now and spy master because kill me now i just think was really one of the early really kind of stripped down hardest tunes kind of yeah out there at that time so we just i've always wanted to
0: play that live so yeah. we were like okay let's let's do that so yeah I'm going to t- definitely talk about that. I know from maybe around 2004 to to wrap up. Kill, kill, kill. Yeah. Uh, whose idea was it to take all the old songs and stick them on that record? That must have been Curtis, right? That was Curtis. I wasn't necessarily
1: a fan of fan of that. I thought they were really two different uh, two different pieces. The yeah. The odd thing is, I mean, just the mastering doesn't even match. You know yeah. what I mean? It's it doesn't yeah. it doesn't really flow yeah i'm kill 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 i mean there were probably nine other songs that we really should have put on there that uh just we never re- we had written and never recorded and a lot of those songs on that record if you really listen if you listen to the whole channel show or what we were doing back then half of those songs are on kill 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 so it was really funny when you get some comments sometimes like oh you really Been really, we were always evolving, um, kind of moving, kind of forward, or trying different things out, kind of musically, and um, so we just thought it was a natural thing. But there were a lot of those tunes. I think even uh, "Torn Apart" we did at the the Misfits Channel show.
2: Well, if Uh, you if you um, there's that uh, that live recording from the Paradise show, where. Springer declares the end of hardcore. Oh, yeah, yeah. That,
0: if you (laughs) listen to that, um, half that set is kill, kill, kill. Yeah. It's really funny because everyone talks about all the Boston bands becoming metal bands, but I think Jerry's Kids has changed the least out of all those bands. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, we didn't, uh, you know, candidly, I mean, we didn't didn't even own a heavy metal record. I didn't buy music like, I was broke for probably from from probably 82 to you know the 90s I so we yeah. we weren't we weren't listening to any of that stuff so it was more we'd listen to the bad brains and go oh gosh we we can we need to push things further or who's could do in your you know, listen to what they're doing from a melody standpoint or chord structure standpoint we need to push a little bit harder so those were the kind of the bands that were kind of pushing us a little bit to think a little differently about what we were doing so um yeah we i didn't understand the whole kind of uh heavy metal thing because i I wasn't listening to any of that i was more likely to listen to you know the discharge record um yeah yeah you know like uh iron maiden or something
0: you know, SSD and DYS, and to an extent gangrene, they actually moved more to the metal side. I wouldn't say Jerry's kids would fall into that category. That's just I, my opinion, though.
2: I, I don't know that Bob Sensei can play a heavy metal lead, or a, it's just not in his DNA yeah. to play that way. Um, he's his own unique thing that adds this
1: element yeah. that that you could never ever call metal yeah and i wouldn't call jack clark a heavy metal drummer yeah right
2: i mean dave just... dave dave <laughs> was listening to a lot of uh heavy metal and i know yeah. when that was recorded you know he was um, but dave didn't write anything yeah he didn't
1: write anything yeah well he did do that lead yeah we made him do a lead on yeah that, on that song right on uh neat so he,
2: he got to do his little bends and everything and in his
0: uh
1: yeah you know yeah
0: yeah for well, the last like maybe close to it'll be almost twenty years, um, when you guys have done shows, aside from the ones Brian did, because there was a few that I saw, yeah. it was Russ Luango and Jack and, yeah. and you and Bob pretty much, right, Rick? Yeah. That was the lineup. Yeah. Uh I was at the uh, Hardcore Matinee uh the, excuse me, the Hardcore Reunion show. Yeah. Is there any reason why you didn't do that one, Brian? You know, I I
2: I should have. And 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 I know we had talked about it and and the set would have worked, um, because we would have just come out, done Boston LA. Right. Or 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 actually I think we were thinking I would finish it like you'd come out, yeah. blow people away, and then and then you know, I'd come out and do the um the Boston
1: LA stuff. Um but yeah, and I, I'd always encourage them, especially when we were getting bigger shows, to come on and do some stuff. And uh, so it was. Uh, I a couple of years back, I was trying to push the straw dogs to actually do a set. So I and uh, Ross and myself kind of raised our hands to help them with that. And then they were the Dead Kennedys were doing a tour and we got asked to open for them at the paradise. And then we were able to get S's uh, uh, rather straw dogs on the show. And I called Brian up and I said, you know, we always do. Usually in the middle of the set or at the end, uh, we would usually do three to four bossa nova not LA songs. So I just said, look, why don't you just come on? We'll cut out a part of the set. You come on and we'll do uh a handful of the uh, Bossa Boston LA uh songs. And so I think that's the first time you did that back a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Boy And then he, from there we would do shows and if it made if we could do it, Brian would uh jump on and we, we would do a yeah. couple of couple of uh Nova shows or sometimes I would just throw him the bass and then during Raise the yeah. Curtain he'd play like the bass the and
0: or I do whatever the hell it is I do. So yeah the reunion show you guys just absolutely you you are the best band by far i can say that you don't have to say it i can say it because i was there and i thought all the bands were good but you guys were unbelievable that day i was blown away um i know that brian played a show in brooklyn because there's footage of that online so that must have been around the time of the straw was that with the straw dogs in brooklyn yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because Steve Martin, old friend of mine too, he actually rejoined the band for that show, didn't he? Yeah, he, he played a few
2: songs. Yeah. That was
0: yeah. that was the stipulation that if Rick was
2: gonna play You had that, to do it. That no, that Steve Martin had to play. <laughs>
0: right, right. Uh, <laughs> actually,
1: Steve was very he was very funny. He uh him and I text and kind of communicate uh on a rolling basis. Uh and uh I'd said, Oh, you know um i actually i sent him some. i said hey i'm gonna be in uh new york the weekend of whatever the weekend was january whatever and i said you know maybe we can grab some dinner and he said yeah you're playing and i said oh yeah you saw that uh so i didn't tell him we were playing and uh then, when the Straw Dogs got on, we were kind of communicating back and forth. And I said, Do you want to do some songs with the Straw Dogs? So then I communicated with them and then wow. they kind of coordinated which songs to do. And because um, I was covering bass duties for the Straw Dogs. So it was kind of doing two sets. That's
0: right. So, that's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. Steve ended up sitting there with Agnostic Front again, too, which is pretty Yeah, oh, that's great.
1: <laughs> yeah, he is really a great. Uh, guitarists and those leads that he lays down are uh yeah because he even at uh the show we did at uh, the middle east i mean <clears throat> his, his playing it makes a big
2: difference there. those straw dog songs when when he plays you 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 can tell it's different he yeah. does a lot of like arpeggios um that you won't hear yeah. the other guys do and it and it really adds really adds a lot
0: yeah. yeah, I met, that's how I, you know, I I worked with the Straw Dogs at Enigma, the Restless uh, label, and that's when I first met Steve, and he ended, we ended up becoming friends in New York, because when I was doing Giant Records, he was a writer, and he reviewed all my records for oh, me, nice. he did a great job, he was a, yeah. he's a good guy, he was on he the is. show not too long ago, nice. he's got Paul McCartney and, and the Foo Fighters now, so he doesn't really need us that much. You know? Well... <laughs> He's not like that though. He's not like that. He's a good guy.
1: Good guy. Absolutely.
0: So um, I guess the obvious question is now, is there ever going to be another, you know, Jerry's kids show with Brian? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. You know, we did our kind of uh
1: final show um a few years back at the Middle East, kind of made it an event, you know. I was really Thrilled, Moving Targets played, Straw Dogs played, Mung played, which are, you know, I just think a phenomenal band. And then uh, we were very lucky in that uh, a number of the members of Volta Bol- did a handful of songs, which again, one of my one of my favorite bands. Love that
0: band. Um,
1: you know, and uh, so that was that was a lot of fun. Um, and part of doing that was just to you know, just kind of try to wrap everything up because we actually we're all really busy and we get kind of nonstop. We are getting and still kind of get a non-stop request to do shows and to do it right takes a lot of work, especially if you're not doing if you don't do that full time and you've got a regular job and you know, we don't want to go out and just kind of play songs and kind of stand there. You know, we wanted to play with the right level of intensity and that takes work and it takes work to be free on stage to really kind of um it shouldn't be work it should be being able to be in the moment and to be in the moment means you need to be rehearsed it's got to be muscle memory and ready to go and um if you're doing two or three shows a year it's it's with that type of music if you're not able to do that then you know you're just yeah. getting paid to do a show and it's, what are you really doing it's um, it's
2: two months it's two months of practices yeah. basically to do one show so if you're only going to do one show that's a lot of practice and then and then you know everyone is you know some of the practices are more productive than others yeah. just
1: because people aren't in the moment And yeah i know there's bands that can get together and they're really great and they do one or two rehearsals, and they get on stage, and they do a phenomenal job. And you know, even working with the Stradogs to kind of cover some stuff for them, you know, it's a couple practices, and you can go because you know you're doing kind of one job with them, and you can be in the moment. Um, and it's different music. You have a little bit time, more time to think. With that jk stuff it's like uh, a rocket ship taken off the minute you kind of get that fork count it's like a different world uh in terms of mentally and physically and um so we can't get away with one or two practices to get right. our level up to where it needs to be to really be happy about what we're doing and then we always if people are going to come out to a show we try to make everyone a little bit different in terms of either arrangements what we're doing and um you know we like to be able to throw stuff in that we don't necessarily know where we're going to go so in order to like even at that last show we had some various transitions that every time we did them, we did them differently. And you need to be in sync musically to be able to do that in front of um, people and feel confident about what you're doing that. Hey, we may do this for 30 seconds. We may do it for two minutes. Uh, We may, uh, whatever, toss Brian the bass or we may switch some things up, but you gotta be communicating without talking, if that makes sense. And to be kind of in that kind of sync and free it takes a lot of work
2: and and i think at this point you know people are people are looking for an experience to see what it what it was like if they didn't experience it and and even though Jerry Skids isn't getting paid they pay to go to the show well, right whatever so <laughs> yeah.
1: we, got, we got paid most of the time yeah,
2: uh, i mean but i i think that i think that it's important that people you know i think it's you know, to, to give them the honest show. Yeah. Um, because it doesn't do justice to the songs, the band or the people that go to see it. Yeah.
1: yeah you um, want to be
0: able to deliver at that level. Yeah. Know, and, if, and I, if I think put the time in then why do it? I yeah. appreciate it. I wish I was, wasn't living in Pittsburgh when that show happened because yeah. I remember hearing about it. I also missed the Chris benefit show. So I ended up missing like two really good shows. Um, I got to ask you, Lovely, was that just like a thing that you were doing for a few minutes and it's gone? Or is that going to be? No, I mean, we worked really, uh, that was, you know, we put a lot of work into that, um, wrote a lot of,
1: um, you know, really collaborative writing with that team. It really just the pandemic yeah. made it hard for us to get together. Yeah. So the stuff that we put out, we we were like, we didn't know when we were going to be able to put it out. So, you know, we had it mixed, but we literally mastered it kind of remotely while the pandemic was going on and then it just was hard to get together and and then a couple of the members ended up having some time constraints so we just said you know what and we're paying for the rehearsals space all through the pandemic so we really wanted to play out and really test the material out live um but yeah we just couldn't um yeah, we just couldn't get it uh, pulled together with the time constraint, so it was good. Good, it
0: good. It was good though, yeah, <laughs> real good, it. real good. Hey, thanks a lot, you guys, man. I appreciate yeah, you. To, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I when I heard that I could get you both together, I, I, I had to jump on that, man. So thank now you. you realize
1: what a mistake it was. Yeah,
0: it's <laughs> like, what was I
1: thinking? These two knuckleheads. Exactly. You guys did a great yeah. job, man. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate uh, it. Take take care, Steve.
0: Okay, so I'm like overly excited about all this. <laughs> That's what happens. I love, love the early Boston hardcore scene. Uh, it just means a lot to me. What can I tell you? I, I just love what those bands did. They they, they had their say, okay? Borrowing heavily from Al Barrill's line. The kids had their say. They did. Uh, that song you just heard after the interview was uncontrollable from This Is Boston, Not L.A., Brian and Rick true originals from the Boston hardcore scene. I have to thank Brian's wife, Lori, by the way, for making this all happen. I saw her at the long wait show. That's a new band that came out in Boston with a bunch of great guys in it from older bands, Glenn Dudley from the wrecking crew, Daryl Shepard, Mark and Steven from Slapshot. And of course, Jamie Schirapper on bass from SSD. We were talking at that show over at Notch Brewery in Boston. And I asked her if she thought Brian would come on my show. And somehow it ended up in getting both of them to do a Zoom call with me. And she pulled it all together. All she, all I did was say I wanted them and I gave her times and she did it all. She's officially the new executive producer of of this show. I wish she was, because she made that happen and that was really good really good thank you so much Laurie. by the way i hope to also have and i've talked to him about this jerry's kids guitarist rockin bob sensi on the show soon as well we got to get all the brain tree kids i mean we had chris he has been on a few times chris will probably be on again cuz gang greens recording i heard which is amazing chris has recovered you know he can't play guitar anymore but he can still sing and you know cuz he had a stroke and you know when you see chris he looks like he's he's struggling a little bit, but man, his brain is so alive and well. I called him before I did the interview with the Jones brothers. And he told me, he said, Rick Jones is responsible for turning us on to all the punk bands. And that's how the whole thing started at Braintree High School, a high school I wish I'd gone to. <laughs> I could say that now, but you know I've never been there. So I don't know for sure. But anyways, I was really honored to have... Brian and Rick on the show. Uh, If you're enjoying this podcast, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Twisted Rico. We have a lot of exclusive content there. Love to have you on board as a patron. Also, Spotify listeners, you can go to the Spotify podcast page now. Uh, The link is on the homepage and you can subscribe to the show there as well. And you'll hear about 10, I think, unreleased shows right now is what I have up there. Uh, Some were previously available, but they're not anymore. If you want to hear them now, they're there. If you want to reach out to me, you can reach me anytime at twistedrico at gmail.com. We're also on all the social media platforms. And I urge you to check out the YouTube page where you can watch the interview I did with Brian and Rick Jones. It's up there on YouTube. Check it out. And also let me remind you that you can go to studio-float.com and use the code blowing smoke10 in the online form for 10% off your order at studio-flow.com. Use the code blowing smoke 10 in the online order form. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. And when I when people write me and they tell me they enjoy the show, it makes me extremely happy. So till the next time we say goodbye. This is Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. Keep the rock and roll alive. Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico is brought to you by Light Street Media.
1: father goes, the wife stays, the friend. Got a bunch of cigarette burns in the back of my head. Bunch of cigarette burns in the words I've said. If I die tonight, hold oh, the hand inside and know that I was never meant for normal.